You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. In this episode, we welcome back Dr. Kenny Fader, professor of archaeology at Central Connecticut State University. He's the author of one of my favorite books, Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, Science and Pseudoscience in Archaeology, and can now be regularly heard on the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. Speaking of that show, We'll be recording a special crossover episode with them later this week, so that'll be coming up soon in our feed and theirs, and our topic will be fairies and archaeology, so I'm very excited about that. Ken's coming back in this episode to talk to us about his new book, which will be available in early December. In fact, you can pre-order it now on Amazon, and a link to that's in the show notes at monstertalk.org. This interview is rather long, and we talk about a lot of really interesting things, including hoaxes and failings in science journalism. For your information, I've tried to beep out Ken to the point that our younger listeners won't get in trouble, but there's always the chance that I miss some because he has a very colorful way of speaking. So if that's a concern to you, perhaps you'll want to listen to this when the kids aren't around. But for now, let's just get right into the Monster Talk. How are you all doing? Good. Good. How about you? Excellent. I am doing spectacularly well. Considering that this was the first day back in class after like a nine-month sabbatical. Oh, wow. So I'm doing really well considering, you know, yeah, considering. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the good thing is all your studies in the past. So it's not like anything's changing. 
I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, just kind of not even even respond to that. <laughs> well, do you, do you still remember how to talk to people in a group? You know, like the, the, the... no. Well, it's it's hard. All right, here's here's the deal. You know, when you're a college professor, you get so much weird from people. Thank you, by the way, for dropping all this salty language so quick. I, I, we're here to talk about your new book to some extent. I can't help but think <laughs> that you yourself are somehow a, a, like almost a tourist attraction. Here's, here's the deal, though. I brag about the fact that the, the podcasts I've done with you guys have a parental advisory sticker on That's them. right. That's right. We do. Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. That probably, that probably means that 14-year-olds gravitate towards my podcast because they're, mm-hmm. whoa, yep. we're going to hear some cool shit. Maybe Do you speak this way in your classes as well? Yeah, I actually do. Uh, we're uh, To be completely honest here, we're bringing you back mostly to talk about your new book. Uh, which, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Which is Ancient America, 50 Archaeological Sites to See for Yourself. Mm-hmm. But we also want to talk to uh, some topics that are very relevant to our listeners. Uh, Absolutely. Talking about archaeological hoaxes and uh, right. science journalism. Wh- what is your book about? 50? It's 50 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here's, Tell us again. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. I, mean, I don't know what I what, what story I told you last time about the book, but here's the real story. What's it really about? What? Uh, so, but look, he, every I think every university professor has that moment of kind of existential angst where you know you're standing in front of a, a group of ninety fresh faces, and you're 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 passionately lecturing about for me, you know, radiocarbon dating, dendrochronology, taphonomy, seriation, and you look out of their faces, and and the and they they look bored to tears, <laughs> and and they're and they're they're on their their laptops, and you know they're not taking notes; they're looking at kitten videos on YouTube, <laughs> and you and you walk out of the class and you go, what the hell am I doing? What what impact am I having? Um, you know, maybe I should have gone the other route and you know become a male model or something, which was uh, definitely a possibility. I mean, for it was me, always right? it was a fifty-fifty, yeah. right? I mean, always, yeah. always. <laughs> I, the, the funny thing was that there was this wonderful bit of synchronicity where I walked back to my office after one of these these like moments of kind of what the hell am I doing? And there was an actual physical letter in my mailbox from, and I, I didn't recognize the the the, the address. So came from i opened it up and it was a letter typed a letter from a student now this this is happening in 2008 so it's eight years ago and it's and it was a letter from a student who starts by saying dear dr fader you won't remember me and i didn't i checked um and i wasn't a really good student i checked he was telling me the truth but four years ago i was a student in your introductory archaeology class and I, I, I apologize. I didn't pay a lot of attention. I got like a low C in the class, but I was I was majoring in business and I didn't have a lot of time for it. But but I want you to know this is four years after the fact. I really enjoyed the class, especially mm-hmm. all those photographs you showed of archaeological sites that you've been to that you used as examples to explain all these methods you were talking about. So if, if that's all the letter was, that's cool. But then he goes on and he says, I just wanted you to know that I'm now married and I have a couple of kids. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, both daughters. And we were, by sheer coincidence, on vacation in Arizona. And we were driving up the I-17 from Tucson to Phoenix and then Phoenix to Flagstaff. And on the way from Phoenix to Flagstaff, we passed this big uh, National Park Service sign for Montezuma's Castle. 
Now, I say it that way because that's how he wrote in his letter, although the apostrophe S isn't there. It's Montezuma Castle. But anyway, <laughs> so I, saw, I saw the sign for Montezuma's Castle, and I turned to my wife. This is him talking in the letter. And I said, hey, remember that crazy archaeology prof I told you about? He showed pictures of this place. And it looked really cool. It's like, it's like this ancient Indian fortress up in a cliff. And I, this guy is now saying to me in the letter, I, t- I told my wife, do you mind if we stop? I think he said it was like pretty close off the highway. And just kind of stretch, uh, get the kids to can run around a little bit. Let's see what it is. And he, he says, my wife said, that's fine. And we got off. The rest of the letter was like, it's the kind of thing that makes even, you know, hardened university profs have been doing this for decades, kind of, you know, you, you catch your breath. He said, listen, Dr. Fader, I want you to know that even though I didn't do very well in your class, you really had an impact on my life because I mm-hmm. never would have stopped to see this. And and it was amazing and and incredible. My wife thought it was really cool. My one-year-old, well, she, you know, she's running around, didn't know what was going on. But he said, and Dr. Fader, I have you to blame for this. My four-year-old looks up at Montezuma's castle, says, Dad, that's really cool. When I grow up, I want to be an archaeologist. (laughs) And it's like, here's the deal. I I have enough issue figuring if I have an impact on the generation I'm actually speaking to. Now I've I've got direct documentary evidence that I have an impact that transcends generations. I've got a second generation... And I'm wondering, I told the kids in my class today, the first day of intro archaeology, that, you know, I, my goal is that at some point in the distant future, some one of your great, great, great grandchildren is going to say, I'm at this site because my great, 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 great granddad took a class from this crazy guy who said this would be a cool place to go. So this, I will I will be immortal. That's, <laughs> or, or, or That's very gratifying. Like, but, but the truth is, it really was like, wow. Um, and I, and after that, I, I changed. It really did change my attitude. It was this kind of little bit of a life changing experience when I thought to myself, "Wow, if that if I can have that kind of impact without intending it for this one guy, maybe what I should do is reorganize that course so that I do that intentionally." So mm-hmm. what I did was I read I read the syllabus after I got this this letter from this guy, so that now instead of the entire class being archaeological methods, which is important, I said, all right, I'm going to do like two-thirds of the class is that. The final third of the class is, okay, you guys now in this class, you have a little bit of background now in how archaeologists date sites, how we find sites, how we dig sites, how we interpret, how we analyze artifacts, how we trace raw materials. You, you have that under your belts now. You've passed a couple of exams. Now... Let's talk about a bunch of really cool places you can go to where those techniques that I've talked about have been applied. And this is how we – I don't have to tell you. When I show you Montezuma Castle, I don't have to tell you what radio what radiocarbon dating is because I can – you know that. But when I tell you the radiocarbon date for this site, it was built around AD 1200 and it's radiocarbon dating that allowed us to date that. You'll understand what I'm talking about at the same time that you're looking at this incredibly cool place. So I did that and it was really successful. And I would get kids every, every semester at the end of the semester, kids would come up to me and say, Dr. Fader, I'm going to the Southwest. I'm going to St. Louis. I'm going to Florida. I'm going to Washington State. How do I get to that site you sh- that you showed in class? Where is it? Because if I, get, if I have an opportunity to, I'm definitely going to see it. And that was super gratifying as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as a little aside here, I mean, 
basically, as I teach at a university where most of the kids in my classes, it's general education. They're not going to be archaeologists. They're not going to be anthropologists. They're taking it because we are a particular mode of thought in the university rubric, and you've got to take one from column A and one from column B. So they're there because whatever. What's, you know, what is my purpose? My purpose isn't really to make them completely fluent in archaeological methodology. Maybe it's to alert them to the fact that there's some really cool stuff in the world that they can look at and uh, that they should appreciate it and they can engage with it. And when they're voting for somebody who says archaeological sites are important, it's, it's, it's a, a, a valid role for the government to help preserve these things that you will vote for that person because you know it's true because you've actually seen these sites and you said, you know, I want to grow up in a world, I want my kids to grow up in a world where they can go see these places where they're not all destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, well, you know, that's, that's a really important function that I can serve in society, whatever. So I, I changed the class, get this great feedback, and then, you know, you take one step, along this journey maybe you take a second and a third and i thought well wait a minute i write books my books have been really successful why can't i have a broader impact than just the 90 kids in my introduction introductory archaeology course tuesdays and thursdays 9 25 to 10 40 why can't i that's a big class yeah you know it's it's huge and i actually enjoy teaching it that way it's 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 cool. Um, and, 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 you know, yet I get a lot of good feedback and you get, hey, listen, when you tell as many jokes as I do, when you're telling them to 15 people, it's just not the same as getting 90 <laughs> people who don't laugh at the same time, but who groan at the same time. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of, it's a, it's a great experience. So anyhow, that's when I thought, well, you know, I've been to a number of the places that, I, the places that I show in class, or, you know, there are a dozen of them. So wait a minute, what if I were to consciously, um, intentionally, Choose, say, 50. 50 is a nice round number. 50 archaeological sites and write a book that, in fact, is kind of an atlas of those 50 archaeological sites that both tell why I think the place is so important, what you'll see if you go there, and some practical information about how the hell you get there. And Mm -hmm. plus, this gives me an opportunity to take lots and lots of photographs and incorporate those in a book. So now, to show you the state of American publishing... Um, and I've, uh, there's, there's actually, obviously there's a happy ending. Um, when I, I start talking to people about this project and I start, I'm going to these sites, I'm photographing them, I'm writing them all up and everybody I talk to says, well, that's, that's a trade book. It's not a textbook. You're going to need a, um, uh, 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 what a representative. You're going to need an agent for that. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. So I, I, you know, I go online and look at all these lists of agents and I find agents who are interested in history, interested in books about travel. Say. Cool. Um, so I I sent off um, the, the prospectus to an agent in New York, and I immediately got a positive feedback. Wow, who knew about these sites? This is really cool, really interesting. The owner of the agency said, well, it's not my kind of book, but I have a person who works for me who this would definitely be up his alley. And I And so I waited, and I heard from him, and this is what he said. He said, what a cool idea for a book really neat, but I'm afraid we're going to have to pass on it because this is not a sure thing and publishers are only interested in sure things. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to tell you, when I went onto their website and looked very closely at the books they represent, it's all about yoga, sex, and dieting. Wow. Those are, and if you you write a book, 
about now, Blake, because you're you're dieting now. If you would talk about how dieting, losing weight, doing yoga has improved your sex life, you <laughs> combine them all. <laughs> there's a, you, my God, you exactly, exactly. You'd have a best seller for sure. So the, I mean, I, I'm really wearing the, Lululemon right now. That's. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, that was kind of depressing, and then I got a lot of other agents who just didn't respond, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. just weren't interested, and then. I, I contacted um, little, um, little Roman and Littlefield, which is a real nice publisher. They do a lot of archaeology stuff. They're out in Colorado and, and was able to chat on the phone to, to Leanne Silverman, who is my editor there now. And the cool thing was I sent her this stuff, and I had no idea if she'd be interested. And she said, well, let, let's talk about it. And we got on the phone, and it must have been a two-hour conversation. And I, I couldn't really tell. I mean, it sounded like she was really interested. At the end of the conversation, he said, Ken, you probably have figured out by now that we've been on the phone for two hours because I'm really interested in publishing this book. And I said, yeah, that's nice. And you know, contract signed, book is in production right now. It's I, I just went through the index, so I've, I've indexed the book myself. Wow. Uh, I, highly I hate recommend. doing that. <laughs> here's, here's the deal with an index. Um, it sounds like a really good idea before you start. You go, wow, this will mm-hmm. be cool. Really see how the book is, is working out. By the time I got to the D's, I thought it was going to kill me. And by the time I got to the S's, I hoped it would kill me before I got to the T's. <laughs> and then, but then by the time I got done, I looked at it and said, okay, you know, this was, it took me three days, but it was a real accomplishment. And, I'm, and now the book is, I think it's supposed to be out um, in December. Yeah, so it was saying really December twelfth, I think. Yeah, and who knows? But but so right now we're in the final throes of the page proofs and and all that. But I'm incredibly happy and pleased with it. And basically, that's what it is. It's the first part of the book is a look. Um, the way the way Leanne described it, and I actually incorporated it into the into the text, into the narrative was, you know, you know those people who do Shakespeare in five minutes. Well, <laughs> the the first twenty pages of the book are. Well, the archaeology of North America in five minutes, or you know, why everything you thought you knew about Native Americans is absolutely wrong. And I start with you know the stereotypes. I go all these stereotypes that you've got. Uh, they live in teepees. They hunt buffalo. Um, that none of that's true. They they all have casinos now. That's almost true. But uh, and they all and they all make fry bread. But that's fine. Um, but but the, the common stereotypes you have absolutely untrue. That we've got this in enormous diversity of cultures of native americans on in, in north america and that we have we have um farmers and and hunters and nomadic people and sedentary people and folks who built giant pyramids of earth and lived in cities and people who lived in little cliff niches uh and who lived in great houses and who put um scratched art into rocks and painted art into rocks and made giant geoglyphs the kinds of things we think of in nazca in peru we've got them here in north america and that these are all places that they're part of our history the part of the history of humanity and too often they're ignored people are ignorant of them and this book the, the effort i make in this book is to is to broadcast this fact to anybody who wants to listen, anybody who's interested in history, anybody who's interested in preservation, anybody who's history interested in nature, anybody who's interested in hiking, anybody who's interested in archaeology or anthropology or Native Americans. This puts this book puts that all together and says, you know, you can enjoy all of that stuff by visiting these sites and all the sites. The the one qualifying characteristic of the fifty sites is they had to be open to the public. 
So these are places that you are welcome to go. In most cases, they are free to go. There's not a ticket. You don't have an entry fee. You can go in there and see you, firsthand what Native American, with the genius of Native American cultures, were able to produce. And um, that's, you know, it, it's kind of like, this has been percolating in my mind since 2008, and now it's going to be an actual book. Incredibly, Congratulations. Yeah, you know, thank you. And it's, it's just incredibly cool. And for, for people interested in the book, here's the deal. The deal is the usual suspects are going to be in this book if you know something about um, American antiquity. If you know something about ancient America, yes, of course, Cahokia, the great mound site in St. Louis, which most people now know about. But certainly Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon are highlighted in this book. But so are places that people unfortunately have never heard of. The Three Rivers Petroglyph site in New Mexico is one of the most astonishing art galleries in the world. And I don't use that term art gallery as a metaphor. That's exactly what it is. A Horseshoe Canyon in Utah is just one of the most mind-blowing places I have ever been to anywhere in the world. And you've got amazing paintings that are a 1,000, maybe 2,000 years old. They, wow. These things are more than six feet tall, up on the side of a cliff, and they look like fa they're phantasmagorical beings. <sighs> Here, let me give you my, my story about, uh, and I think this is really useful for, for the audience, of, for, for, you, for your audience, Blake and Karen. Um, I am, I'm not a religious person. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm no. a really, I, listen, on a really <laughs> super good day, on a great, wonderful, awesome day, the sun's shining, um, uh, it's beautiful sky, I'm going to be hiking around. I, you know, I've got this beautiful young woman I'm married to, who she must be mentally ill to be married to me, but whatever. <laughs> and on those days, I'm an agnostic. And the rest of the time, it's like, no, this is bullshit. I'm an atheist, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate the sacred, because mm -hmm. I, however I want to define it. Here's the deal: Horseshoe Canyon, and I bet you, you guys, and I bet you, everybody listening has had this kind of experience. So, Horseshoe Canyon is a slog. It's like three and a half miles. You have to go. It's an 800 foot drop down into a canyon. It's a hike. It's not a climb. And then you're you're hiking about three and a half, three and a quarter miles to this one amazing pictograph site. Um, and during the hike, you know, you're talking, you're chatting, you're joking the way people do when they're out in nature. And you get to this place and it's the spookiest freaking thing imaginable. It's not a lot of people go there. There's a, there's a ranger there. There are very few people there. And as soon as you come into the presence of this, the, the, the art panel is over a hundred feet long. It's up 15 feet, so whoever did this painting had to climb up onto a ledge, it's 15 feet high, and the paintings themselves, they are all, anthrop many of them are, there are two dozen anthropomorphs, they look kind of like people, um, they're long, elongated, elongated bodies, no arms, no legs, sort of round heads, big googly eyes, amazing stuff. When people arrive there, everybody starts whispering, and it's not like there's a sign saying, shh. You're in, you're, in, you're in the presence of something kind of spiritual and sacred. Be quiet. It just happens. Reverence. Where, sudden, where suddenly it's like, whoa, that's amazing. That's a cool feeling. And it really, it, it really is. It, it's, I don't, you, know, you don't have to be a Catholic to walk into the uh, what St. Peter's Basilica and look at that Michelangelo painting and go, wow. I mean, you can think, oh, that's bullshit, but wow, that's really amazing. 
You don't have to be religious to look at the statue of David and go, wow, that's amazing. It's just, it just is mind-blowing, and it, 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 it catch, you catch your breath. It takes your breath away. Mm-hmm. And the entire time we were there looking at this panel, everybody whispered. And then you leave and you start talking. You go, did you notice that? Wasn't that strange? But it's, I think you realize you're in the presence of something amazing and mm-hmm. mind-blowing. And call it sacred. Call it whatever the hell you want. And I view it as the sacredness of the human mind. Mm-hmm. You know, that this, wow, people really thought long and hard about this. I want, can I do a little aside here? Sure, she no. also pissed the shit at me. You want to know why? <laughs> if you go to the UFO... The International UFO Museum in Roswell, New Mexico. Been there. And I, mm-hmm. I was there. <laughs> they have a display. When were you there? Um, it was in 1997. All right. The display I saw there, this is what I'm talking maybe a year or two ago. I think it's new. And it's an exhibit where they have photographs of Native American rock art. The panel that I'm talking about was one of them. Another site in my book, Sago Canyon, Photographs of this of another art panel is in that one. Now these are these belong to the Native Americans. Native Americans, they're the ancestors of the people living there now, made these things, and they are religious and spiritual from their perspective. At at the UFO Museum, these are depictions by Native Americans of extraterrestrial aliens oh. landing on Earth, and oh. you just want to punch them in the mouth are you kidding me (laughs) that's you know that's that's insulting to human beings and especially insulting to the native artists who were expressing their imagination their creativity the things they had in their mind about the universe and that's their intelligence they're not photorealistic depictions of aliens on earth so there's and i i I don't pull any punches in the book I, i point this out i say that's nonsense, and it's insulting, and it's racist. These are artists. You know, when I, I tell this to my students all the time, because if you look at a Picasso, right, look at a Guernica, right, and look at these people and they're two-dimensional, they got eyes on both sides of their heads. Look at Salvador Dali with the, the watches melting. Do mm-hmm. you think Salvador Dali actually went to a place where watches melt? <laughs> or do you, or do you afford Salvador Dali the honor of being a creative genius? Uh-huh. Well, most people say, "Well, yeah, I like Dali. I don't like Dali, but yeah, of course, that was his imagination." Well, hell, don't you? Should you not afford Native Americans the same privilege of having an imagination and of creating amazing art? That's not like a photo you take on your cell phone. It's something they saw in a dream, in a vision, or just made it up out of whole cloth. That's what people do. And and so I want people to go to those sites and look at them and go, well, yeah, man, that's not a guy in in his flying saucer. That's just a really cool image. And maybe, maybe nobody can explain exactly what it means, but that's what human beings do. That's pretty cool. Why do you think people want to believe that ancient art and architecture have been designed by aliens instead of humans? It, it really, it's kind of drives you crazy, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it drives me crazy. And I, it drove me to write a book. So I'm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah exactly. It's taking it too far. <laughs> I guess, you know, a step too far. But, but you know what? Maybe people who write books like that are part of a, 
of a plan. We're part of a I've actually gotten an email where somebody accused me of being part of a conspiracy to keep it quiet because they said just looking at you on the TV, you know more than you're letting on. Mm. <laughs> oh my God. It's but, your hair. It's right? a compliment, I guess. <laughs> listen, the deal is remember that, that James Randi once what replicated um, was it a spirit drawing or something like that? Mm-hmm. And then and then showed how he did it and the person said, No, 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 no. You're hiding something, Randy. That was actually ESP. You know, that was actually yeah. psychic. Yeah. How, do you, how the, I mean, how the hell do you respond to somebody after you've shown exactly how you did yeah. the trick? And they uh-huh. said, uh, and uh, you couldn't. No, you you really are a psychic, and you're. It's you know, it's all like deep cover. Like, <laughs> well, do why you- do, I, I think that ultimately they answer your question, Karen. It's that it's that cultures, especially um, non-Western cultures, are viewed as so mysterious. So mm-hmm. mystical that we can't apply to them kind of the normal ways of gauging human creativity or okay. imagination. And so it's no, no, no. They can't. They can't have actually just made that up. It mm-hmm. must be something beyond that. So mm-hmm. you can accept that on you know Western artists can do whatever the hell they want, but like native people, no, 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 no. They must be. They must be depicting something they actually saw. Well, you know, I, I've been reading, and this will be relevant to our listeners, the, the, a lot of the old John Keel books uh, from the 60s. And in, in his talking about monsters and other aliens and UFOs, he, he does a lot of these sort of uh, insults. And one, one of the ones he does repeatedly is he talks about archaeologists and their orthodoxy. And it's always the orthodox view. Right, yeah. And, yeah, and with the implication being that 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 they there's a received set of knowledge that is archaeology, and that it's it's not based on anything but someone else's opinion, and that mm-hmm. but, and then it has to be maintained by preservation of that opinion at all costs, which is of course absurd. Uh, and and I, yeah, I, yeah. I I feel like there's this sort of like gross lack of understanding of of how archaeologists have come to the conclusions they have about uh, what they know about history, right? Yeah. You, do you know the book Forbidden Archaeology? No, that sounds like mm. a good one. Uh, it's this huge tome, and it was Cremo and Thompson are the authors. And these guys, effectively what it is, is Hindu, Hindu creationism gone wild. It was published by the, the Transcendental Meditation Church, or whatever okay. they're called. And what, the, what, the, what their claim is that human beings, just like you and me, have been on this planet for billions of years, and that there's archaeological evidence for that. And, but that what the, the, the term they use again and again in the book is we apply, we archaeologists apply, a knowledge filter so that anything that doesn't fit through the filter, we just simply ignore. And, of course, what doesn't fit through the filter are you know spark plugs that are two million years old in the Arizona desert or footprints that are bil- that are a billion years old um, in Africa, and or tools, uh, artifacts that are millions and millions, but or or even billions of years old, showing that human beings have been around this entire time. Um, and it, it actually, when by the time you're done reading the book, they never admit it. But if you look at kind of a literal interpretation of of Hindu creation, it's 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 it it mirrors that very very nicely. But they use the term knowledge filter. So what they, what people, I guess, are thinking is that we all are, have these clubs and we have we are dressed, we, we have tweedy suits and we smoke pipes and we all speak with British accents because that makes us you know more sophisticated. <laughs> and, and we just, oh, no, no, can't, can't believe that, can't have that. And these are folks. The thing is, I I, I highly recommend 
anybody who thinks that to go to an archaeology conference and see people yelling at each other and screaming at each other and disagreeing. And then the, the idea that we follow, we tow some party line is complete nonsense. I'll give you a good example. Um, we have um, archaeologists today who are not in the mainstream at all who have major positions at universities and even the Smithsonian Institution. And these are people who they show up at conferences and people go, oh, man, that guy's got a nuts. But they didn't go fired. They didn't lose tenure. They are, if they do good work, if they're honest scholars, even if they come up with with explanations or interpretations that the vast majority of their cohorts disagree with, we have a beer with them. We put our arm around their shoulder. We say, you know, you're nuts but i like you you're a nice guy um, it really isn't the case that people become ostracized or, or fired yeah I, I agree that before you get tenure you probably have to be kind of careful about this stuff but tenure is a license to kill um, i'm not supposed to admit that but fundamentally it means that man unless unless you take a life in the classroom on a sunday you're you're kind of set for life and so Tenured faculty have absolute freedom to say just about whatever they want, to publish whatever they want. The, the deal is, yeah, of course there is a filter. Um, people, people tell me, well, you know, you, you scientists, you apply a filter. I say, yeah, you're damn right. And so do you. When you go buy a used car, you better apply a filter. Do you believe everything that anybody tells you? Well, no, of course you don't. <clears throat> Nor should you. And this is why when you come to the doctor and they say, oh, man, you've got this really bad condition, your doctor will tell you, get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. there, there's no filter there. They want multiple opinions. And archaeologists, we encourage multiple well, opinions. Well, yeah, but the filter's supposed to be the scientific method wherein you right. can yeah, test yeah. things as opposed to the filter is, is this in my list of things I can say are true because it's already been told to me that it is, right? So right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's quite a big difference. And, right. and, and that's, I think that is maybe lost on a lot of the general public. Yeah. So. I, don't, I don't think people understand the whole process of reviewing an article, of peer review. I don't think they no. get that, that, hey, you know what? Before something gets published, a bunch of my colleagues are going to look at it and they are going to tear me another if I'm not super careful, if I don't have my ducks in a row, if I don't have the evidence to support what I what my conclusion is. That doesn't mean that every peer review paper is correct, but it means that that process is really important. Some time ago, I remember dealing with the ghost hunting group and, and they said, so they picked up the term peer review and they said, look, our, uh, we have evidence of ghosts and uh, uh, our work has been peer reviewed because we showed our videos on YouTube and we had, <laughs> we had fellow colleagues who came back and, and discussed this with us and, and our evidence. So, yeah, it's been peer reviewed. Wow. But when your peer group is, are a bunch of guys in their basement clicking YouTube videos, that's not exactly what we have in mind. It's not the know? same thing. <laughs> I don't the the uh, I mean the, if you consider the just the wealth of uh, cultural advancement that's been provided by YouTube comments I mean <laughs> well, has, it, has, has anything really pushed society forward like YouTube comments I don't think so yeah well it's like you know I like cute kitty videos as much as the next person but once you get past that you have to be really careful what people are saying YouTube is it YouTube is great but it's also a cesspool. And there's some yeah. pretty bad shit. When I say bad shit, I mean that that there are folks out there who are recasting human antiquity in in ways that are absolutely racist or racialist. 
And mm-hmm. some of that stuff is really scary. And um, well, we won't discuss politics too much. But some of these folks are are um, you know have, have a very high view of particular cohorts, in, especially people of European ancestry, and and view that view it in biblical terms. God knows what else, and <laughs> it's pretty scary stuff. Um, um, and yes, that stuff is not peer-reviewed by anybody who you would want to be a peer of. Well, you know, yeah. a, a little bit of wackiness uh, is that, as I understand it, uh, part of archaeology will eventually encompass uh, digital archives like uh, YouTube, for example. So yeah. this is the middens pile of the future, and we can sort of experience that right now. I, I, don't, I don't envy those people who have to look through that and try to make sense of it. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, and, and it's just, there's such an explosion of it. It's just so, yeah. it's, it's enormous and growing, of course, all the time. So how anybody is going to make any sense of it, I have no mm-hmm. idea. But yeah, but uh, the peer review process is not, a, is not a process for filtering out things that we are uncomfortable with. It's just listen. Science works. In, that, that's one of the arguments I have with folks a lot. Is that we have, but we don't. But but I really feel this is true. Or you know, I but but I but I this makes me feel better. I said, look, all that's great. But if you're if you're talking about science, that's that's a ballpark with particular rules and regulations. And if you don't like the rules and regulations, take your ball and go home. Go do something else. But don't come into our ballpark and say, well, we can do science with you, but you got the rules wrong. No, these are the rules. And if you don't like the rules, then, you know, go away. Yeah. So As a, did I ever tell you this? That I, oh, 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 God, a year or so ago, I was giving a lecture Um at uh, a local historical society about archaeological frauds. And at the end of the lecture, this guy came up to me with a big um, ring ba- you know, ring notebook with like page after page after page of these clear um, sleeves with photographs in them. And they were all photographs of giant rocks. And that's what they were. They were giant rocks from southern New England and New York. And he opens it up to me and says, you don't think these are frauds, do you? Because there were so many, of them. <laughs> and I said, "I said, well, no." He goes, well, "What do you think they are?" And look, I look at you know they were kind of grainy photographs. Some of them weren't in focus. It was kind of dark. But I looked at it and said, "Well, these certainly look to me to be glacial erratics. Really cool geological features where the rocks are moved about by the glaciers. In fact, that's how one of the the streams of evidence that indicated that there had been huge ice sheets moving moving around on the planet was because people found these erratics rocks." that didn't belong where they were found. Rocks, big rocks that are uh, not the same um, bedrock or raw material as the bedrock underneath them. And the guy looked at me, and this is exactly what he said. I am going to quote him now. He said, well, Ken, I don't know anything about geology, but they're not erratics. (laughs) Now, Now, that's a really... And, and, you know, Karen, you asked if I speak this way in class. What I told my class today, I told that story in class today, and what I told them is, if you are ever in a situation where somebody is showing you something or you are tempted to share your opinion, and you start the sentence with, well, I don't know anything about this topic, Mm -hmm. but I think what you should do at that moment is (laughs) shut the f*** up. <laughs> and I, wonderful I, advice. I, and I mean that in the nicest way possible. <laughs> and it's like, listen, if you are admitting right here that, I, listen, I don't have any training or any background or any knowledge at all in the relevant <laughs> discipline, what you ought I to believe. do is, is therefore sit down and say, I, I don't know. 
I, I have no idea. Listen, if you were having blinding headaches and you were getting the oil changed in your car and the guy's a great guy and he does great work on your car, would you say to him, oh, man, I've been having this headache for two weeks? If he said to you, well, I don't know anything about medicine or neurology, but if I were you, I'd eat more peaches. <laughs> would you do that? Would you go, oh, God, I'm really relieved. I'm going to eat more peaches. Well, hell no. Uh, my mother would. would. <laughs> well, maybe. But, but that's, that's, that's a cardinal rule for us all. And that includes scientists. That includes me. If somebody asks, so, Fainer, what do you think about string theory? <laughs> my response is, oh, it beats the hell out of me. I don't understand it at all. And it's not, well, I don't know anything about physics, but I really like string cheese. So maybe I have something to say about this that's a value. No, you probably don't. I'm just uh, imagining, like, I've got to describe this episode now. And I'm going to say, <laughs> Ken yeah. Fader shares a tale of someone sharing their erratic photography. <laughs> 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 Make sure you spell erratic correctly. Yeah, exactly. Well, you might get more hits if you spell it incorrectly. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is probably a good segue to talk about uh, archaeological fraud. When Blake said, well, we can talk about Piltdown, this new article, I immediately said, you know, yeah, we got to discuss how crappy um, uh, the pop, uh, popular media deals with scientific discoveries. Here's the deal. Um, can I use, am I allowed to use a sports metaphor? Sure. sure. I don't, you may have to explain it to me, but go for it. What? <laughs> All right. If, if you want, it's a baseball metaphor. You watch ba- baseball on TV. Usually the camera is like out somewhere in center field and it's aimed in at the guy at the plate, the pitcher. The pitcher is in the foreground. He's throwing the ball, obviously. The, the umpire is in the background and the catcher is catching the ball. And then they superimpose the strike zone over that. So you watching on TV can tell better than the umpire whether the ball is in the strike zone or out. But good catchers, good baseball catchers, have a facility for what they call framing the pitch. Mm-hmm. Framing the pitch means that the that you see that the ball actually enters his mitt out of the strike zone. But what he does is he really quickly moves his mitt into the strike zone. Maybe it's three or four inches. And if he's good at it, he does it before the, emp- the umpire figures that out. He looks, he sees the ball is in the strike zone. And the umpire goes, strike! He's framed the pitch. He's taken something out of the strike zone, made it look like it's in the strike zone, and the umpire calls strike. Media, popular media, when it comes to science, they frame the story. And how they do it is they look at an act, the, this particular article about the new discovery at Piltdown is really cool, it's really important, and it advances our knowledge of Piltdown a little tiny bit. It's an incremental increase in what we knew. And in fact, if you read the, 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 um, the abstract of the article, and if you know anything about Piltdown, you read the abstract and you go, we already knew all this decades ago. What are they talking about? But you know what? Would you click an article that said, new research advances knowledge a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or research Research published in Nature magazine helps a little bit our understanding of. Well, no, that's what we already know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But but you've got to say groundbreaking. The research is always groundbreaking. Mm. It's always earth shaking. And you know what? It's always going to cause us to do rewrite the textbooks. Mm. (laughs) Here's the deal: if you looked at any, now you look at my my archaeological frauds book. You know what? If you're on, if you're going on Amazon right now and you're looking to see, you know, how I could 
pre-order Ancient America, you might you're gonna have to wait a couple of months to satisfy that itch to read something by me. You can buy my frauds <laughs> book right now. But I have a chapter about Piltdown in there. Read that chapter, take the book out of the light, or read anybody having anything to say about Piltdown in the last few decades. And what will they tell you? Um, the mandible, Piltdown is, it, it's this 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 artificial oh, yeah, yeah. combination. If- <laughs> All right, so it's 1909, 1910, this guy Charles Dawson, um, who is a, a collector. This guy is, is in fact, his, his nickname is the Wizard of Sussex. For all the finds, he finds he finds fossils, and he's had fossils named after him. He finds gas, natural gas deposits in England. First guy to do that. He finds documents about ancient buildings that nobody could find. Everybody thinks, "Wow, this guy's really good at finding stuff." Turns out that some of that stuff that he found fabricated, Uh. hoaxed. So this is not the first time he's involved in a hoax. But anyway, he's the um, I guess they call him a steward of Barkham Mills Manor. So it's this big manor in England. Uh, Dawson is a lawyer by trade, but he doesn't really practice much. He basically walks around the countryside looking for cool stuff. He's the steward of this manor. They're they're fixing a road. They're digging through some gravel that's got flint in it. And he tells the workers, if you see anything out of the ordinary, anything, any tools or any bones, let me know. According to, to Dawson, nobody ever interviewed the workers. Dawson says, well, in 1909, they said, oh, yeah, we've got these pieces. We don't know. It looks like a coconut or something. Uh, Dawson immediately recognized them as skull fragments. This is Dawson's story. Dawson then contacts a person who he knows already. These guys have a relationship, Arthur Smith Woodward, who is a real deal, um, the keeper of geology at the British Museum of Natural History in London. And he's a, by, he is, by training, he is a paleontologist and an ichthyologist especially. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. He's got... Uh, Woodward, from what I can tell, had aspirations to be more famous, um, you know, more, better known. And you know what? If you spend your life studying prehistoric fishes, that might not be in the cards for you. <laughs> but anyway, so Dawson brings the, the fragments up to, to Woodward. Woodward says, oh, my God, this is really important. Because there are, at this point, there are really, there literally are no ancient human fossils in England. They're finding them in Germany, Neanderthals. They're finding them in France. They're finding them in Belgium. They're finding them in Spain, mostly Neanderthals. And in England, there are no human ancestral fossils. A French paleontologist of the time uh, deriding British anthropology, archaeology, and paleontology characterized it as mere pebble collecting. Wow. Because they don't have any bones. But that's our national honor. And you know, hey, listen, this is not the only time that archaeological frauds have been pulled in order to feed into people's nationalism. Uh, the, the Nazis were mm-hmm. heavy into that. And Shinichi Fujimura, who was a Japanese, actually the, the guy worked at like like an electronics firm, but was an amateur archaeologist, became so lucky. Well, no, Dawson was the Wizard of Sussex. Shinichi Fujimura was called the, the Hand of God when it came to finding archaeological sites. Wow. When, when Fujimura arrived on the scene in Japan in the early 1980s, the oldest sites in Japan were 30,000 years old, and Japanese really felt kind of left out because you've got Peking Man in China that may be half a million years old. You've got sites in China that are much, much older. And here in Japan, it's like we're an afterthought, 32,000 years. By the time Fujimura was done, he was finding sites that were 600,000 years old in Japan. But he's the guy that there were, you know, all these these stories about the guy, and they, a hidden camera caught him um, putting putting rocks in the ground. Wow! And he was caught dead. Right-handed. But <laughs> there you go. But but see, here's the deal that that so that what we think that in, in large measure, one of the reasons that the folks in, in 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 Great Britain didn't look carefully enough at these fossils is they really wanted it to be true. Because mm-hmm. with Piltdown, not only did Great Britain have fossils maybe older, older than Neanderthal, based on the fact that the cranium itself, as reconstructed, looked very modern, but the jaw looked really primitive, it was viewed as, this is a much better missing link than Neanderthal. And you can see, the British started drawing up these these diagrams, these evolutionary diagrams, where the Neanderthals were these sad evolutionary offshoots, but the main trunk of the human evolutionary line was Piltdown was at the bottom of that. So it was like a twofer. Not only do we have fossils in England, our fossils are better than your fossils. God, <laughs> suck on this, French people. Um, I didn't say that exactly, but that's what they had in mind. So anyway, so so Smith Woodward shows up at the site. They dig. It's, uh, it's By 1912, they've got a, a, a mandible. They've got fragments of a skull. They've got lots of artifacts. They have lots of other fossils. And they've got a canine tooth that fits into the mandible that looks like an ape. So it's this is the missing link, a human-like skull, but a very primitive or simian jaw and probably simian ape-like rest of the body. Uh, Grafton Elliott Smith, who's an Australian, living in Great Britain, a paleontologist and geologist, he said that, that what this proves is that human beings evolved as effectively um, 
we were chimpanzees from the neck from the neck down. They were kind of that the first the first human had a human-like skull, but was very chimp-like from the neck down. Now we know if you look at Australopithecus, um, it's exactly the opposite. That it's from the neck down that we become human long before the skull becomes human. But anyway, so here's so the deal here is um, they published this in I think it's Nature Nature magazine in December of 2012. This announcement we've got something really important, and then they go on. And they, they get Dawson and Woodward go on and give this public lecture where they bring the fossils to the Geological Society of London. And the world, the, the paleontological world, the archaeological world is in an uproar. This changes everything. The deal, the problem there was because it inspired people to go look for, you know, supporting evidence and nobody could find supporting evidence. Mm -hmm. In fact, all the evidence contradicted Piltdown. And the interesting thing about that, and it's the way science works, is that. I've got a textbook from the late 1940s in which it talks about Cro-Magnon and talks about Java Man and it talks about Peking Man and talks about Neanderthals. And there's a footnote. And in the footnote it says, by the way, in England, back in the 19, you know, 1909 to 1912, 1914 really, this, this fossil called Piltdown was discovered and it doesn't match anything we've just described. So if it turns out to be the legit, then everything we've just told you has got to be reassessed. But as of right now, we can't confirm it. So mm -hmm. even before there was any evidence that the whole thing was a fake, there were the, the evolutionists and paleonto paleontologists, paleoanthropologists, archaeologists were saying there's something that smells bad about that. Mm -hmm. And there even were people saying, you know, the, the thing maybe that's maybe the mandible looks so ape-like and the skull looks so human because. It doesn't belong to the same guy, that the skull is human and the, and the mandible is an ape. Problem there was, wow, what a coincidence. For the first time in, in paleontology in England, in the same pit, is a fossil ape and a fossil human. That's, we didn't expect that. Nobody expected, nobody predicted at the time that, well, maybe they were found there together because somebody put them there to try to confuse us. Uh, and in fact... There were paleontologists who recognized that the, the, where the, the mandible was broken, the condyle that, that articulates at the base of the skull, that would guarantee, that, that would make it absolutely certain whether the mandible, the lower jaw, went with the skull. And this guy, I can't remember who it was, who said, it's as if Providence stepped in to confuse us because that's the, that, that part of the mandible is missing. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, but it wasn't Providence. It was entirely intentional. Whoever yeah. planted them knew you know what, if I leave that condyle there, it'll be clear that it doesn't belong, so I've got to, I've got to tear it off. And he took out the, and we now understand that the, the skull and the jaw, the mandible, two entirely different creatures. They were put there, they were, pieces were glued together with like putty, um, <laughs> the teeth were removed, were filed down to look more like a human pattern of eating, and put back in. Um, and so the whole thing was, was fraudulent. So, so when you have this uh, mystery like this that's been around for a while, I right. know, like if you look at the Jack the Ripper case, for example, there's this whole thing of ripperology. Who was Jack the Ripper? So there's something similar going on with Piltdown. Who was behind it? Yeah, here, the the deal here is, uh, in the, I, I hate to, no, I don't hate to keep referring to my own books. Why shouldn't I? Uh, in my, my new edition, <laughs> that's what you're here for. In the next edition of Frauds, which is Oxford University Press picked up the, the book, so I'm working on the ninth edition now, 
Um, I, I have a spreadsheet, and the spreadsheet basically has all right. Here are the here are the here are all these people who've been accused of being the Piltdown perp. Here's the evidence for them. Here's the conclusion, um, and it's, it becomes like this parlor game. The deal here is that for at, before the publication of the article that says we've got it, it's, it's that that the headlines read. It's absolutely solved. We know who did it now. Before that, everybody who wrote about Piltdown, rec- no, I won't say everybody. The great majority would look at every one of the names on my list and say, circumstantial, 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 with one exception. That's Charles Dawson. Mm-hmm. The, the article in question concludes that Charles Dawson did it. Well, that's it's a wonderful piece of research. I'm really glad these guys did it. I'm glad it's open source. That's awesome. But saying what, but but to characterize it as saying now we've got proof that Charles Dawson did it is like saying, wow, now I've got new evidence that John Wilkes Booth actually is the assassin of Abraham Lincoln. Well, dude, it's great if you got more evidence, but we already knew that. Right. <laughs> and essentially, it's the same thing. Um, the uh, effectively what they what they say is that look. Dawson had, but but what they're saying in the article is what people have been saying for a very long time. He had motive, he had opportunity, and he and he had the the, ex, the level of expertise necessary to pull this thing off. The the conclusion, and so that conclusion in this article is not groundbreaking. It's it's great that they've got new DNA evidence showing. Uh, I told you that the, the the mandible was an orangutan. We have known that for a long time, but there was always a little hint of doubt that maybe, that in terms of size and morphology, it could have been a young female chimpanzee, but probably not. These guys did DNA on the mandible. Guess what? It's an orangutan. Well, that's good. That's really important. But it's not not like, gee, we had no idea what it was. Wow, now we know it's orangutan. It's like we were 99% sure it was an orangutan. Now we're 100% sure. It's good to go the extra 1%, but don't characterize that as groundbreaking throw out the textbooks we know we, we don't have to mm-hmm. we really don't because what they're doing is confirming what we already were very very sure that we knew the thing that they conclude that it that i actually will argue is absolutely not proven by them is that dawson acted alone hmm. one of the one of the ongoing controversies is did he have was dawson kind of the useful idiot in all this was he not really the guy who did it alone? Did he need the expertise of somebody? I mean, here's the, the bottom line here is Dawson's got a lot of connections. Could he have obtained an orangutan mandible in 1909? Where would you find one of those things? Um, you know, that that's kind of an open question. Uh, so the argument has always been, well, maybe there was some help. And there are people who point to Smith Woodward, who like this was going to make his career. But that doesn't make any sense because after Dawson dies, Woodward continues digging in the Piltdown pit for a couple of years. Well, if he knew the whole thing was, why would he go back to look in the same pit that he had fabricated? That doesn't make any sense. Good point. Uh, Grafton Elliott Smith. Well, maybe he was involved because why? Well, because he arrived from Australia just about a year before the Piltdown discovery. Well, my God, a lot of people arrived from Australia a year before the Piltdown discovery. They didn't do it. You want to know what my favorite? You guys, have you guys ever heard that Arthur Conan Doyle has been accused of being behind it? But it was really Moriarty. No, no, no. (laughs) No, But for for real, 
there have been a number of articles suggesting Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories and a bunch of other cool novels, that, that Conan Doyle actually did live fairly close to Piltdown, to where the fossil was found. That's about the only piece of evidence that people have. But then they say he had motive. And the motive is that here Conan Doyle, who had written, who had de developed and invented the greatest scientific deductive mind in all of literature, was himself credulous and gullible and believed very strongly. He was a spiritualist. So he went to, went to seances and he believed that he was talking to his dead son, I think his dead mother, a dead brother-in-law. And, um, and he, he's, he's, Conan Doyle also was snookered by the, the, the little girls who took pictures of fairies. The cutting of fairies, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And don't, Conan Doyle said, no, 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 those are legit. You couldn't fake those. So here's this guy who wants to appear scientific because of his creation of Sherlock Holmes. Um, actually, in a couple of, of real cases, Conan Doyle applied his Sherlockian deductive uh, logic and actually solved a couple of real um, um, court cases where people were accused of something that they didn't do, and he got them off. So he, so obviously he's a really smart guy, but in the but uh, in the the circles he traveled in, scientists tended to look down their nose at him. And so the argument is he was pissed off, particularly at Ray Lancaster, who was a paleoanthropologist, paleontologist, and that to get back at him and all these doubting Thomases, he planted this with the intention of humiliating them by revealing that the whole thing had been a transparent fraud, so you scientists don't know what the hell you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But there is not a scintilla of evidence that Conan Doyle had anything to do with it, other than, well, he lived nearby, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and he had a motive. And, then, and ultimately, if, if, that, if it was Conan Doyle, it screwed up, because Ray Lancaster, who did become a supporter of Piltdown, but he wasn't the guy who was brought in to dig it. He's not the guy who kind of hitched his career to Piltdown the way Arthur Smith Woodward did. So it's none of that makes any sense. So the deal. So in the, in the the argument they provide in the article is that everything at Piltdown is very. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Read the article. Everything is so consistent. It must have been one guy who did it. That makes no sense to me. If you've got two people working together, well, hell, they could be consistent in pulling off a fake. That would be the point. So the fact that all the fossil finds were very consistent, I find that to be a very weak argument and an unconvincing argument. So ultimately, the article is great, but don't believe don't believe the headlines in these short pieces on, online about groundbreaking, hey, they solved this mystery. What they did was they contributed, and it's a significant contribution, but they've only advanced our knowledge of what happened in Piltdown incrementally. Okay. And, and you know what? 99.9% .9 of science is exactly that. Right. It's not people curing cancer in their garage or, or, or you know, figuring out the, 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 how the Maya collapsed uh, when they're sitting around one day just kind of smoking their pipe. It's a lot of people working hard, putting lots of little pieces of a puzzle together, and then mm -hmm. finally the picture emerges. Um, and this is a, the, the story of Piltdown is an emerging picture. It's the picture's not done, the puzzle's not done. These guys have added a few interesting pieces, but they have they, they haven't solved the mystery. Ultimately, the the mystery has been solved over decades by a lot of people 
doing a lot of research. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- and I think that whole incrementalism is also a big part of the research I'm doing on technology in general. So right, science, okay. it's because science, you know, uh, as a methodology, it basically works as a selective pressure and you have all these different hypotheses that are out there, hypotheses mm-hmm. that are out there. And then as they get tested, you sort of filter out and you know, whittle away the ones that don't make sense, right? But it's sure. interesting to me that people who won't adopt science uh, will maintain these sort of uh, fallacious or hoax-based ideas well beyond when the rest of the world's given up on them, right? So oh, yeah. I don't yeah. know if anybody still thinks Piltdown is legit, but there's Yeah, other, that'd be interesting if anyone... But there's people... Did. Yeah, it would be... But there's, I'm, they're probably out there. But there's people who think that the Shroud of Turin is is legitimately, oh yeah, the burial well, cloth. Definitely, oh, there's a Shroud of Turin Center uh, in Colorado Springs, and and they still promote it. Yeah, but it's like I've it's, got to get it's there. Definitively been dated to the 1300s, right? All right yeah, so, it's not according to them. Yeah, <laughs> I, they they go through a lot of gyrations, but but ultimately, I, I think it was Walter McCrone who. He was not part of the dating of the of the shroud, but Walter McCrone, the microscopist who also worked on the Vinland map, who he's the one who said, "No, there's pigment on there. There's, there's paint on here, and there's paint on here that that clearly was applied um, by an artist." And McCrone is the guy who said when he looked at the um, the argument that, "Well, no, what happened was there was so much contamination on the shroud, it made it appear much much younger than it was." Crone did the math and said, "For that to be true." Based on simple physics and math, um, the shroud would have to be two thirds contamination. Wow! And and it, it well it isn't. It's you know it's ninety nine point nine percent shroud. Right. Uh, but yeah, but people still people still will embrace that. The, you know the creationists actually love the Piltdown story because they don't get the self correcting nature of of science. They just say, see, yeah, the the, the evolutionists had to fake this. So well, that's that, right. that's what they were reduced to making it up. It's like mm-hmm. the, when you when you use science to prove something untrue, then they go, "Look, science was wrong." Not there is science in action, right? That, that's mm-hmm. a pretty different right. interpretation. So, right. yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I I have to admit, I say, "Look, you know, you're right." Uh, it took forty ish years to definitively show that Pilton was a hoax, but understand. That in the nineteen late nineteen oh nine nineteen ten nineteen eleven twelve though the nineteen teens there were scientists saying this doesn't make sense there's something wrong here we just can't prove it yet and then as the decades went on and as people tried to find confirming evidence they found evidence that in fact threw Piltdown into dispute like I said in the late in the nineteen forties you won't find textbooks saying no Piltdown's got to be true. It's got people saying we just don't know what to make of it because it doesn't fit everything else we know. That's how science works. And if and if, sci- if it takes decades to figure that out, that's okay because science doesn't work on a you know a human generational level. It works much longer term than that, and that uh, we'll all be dead and gone, and somebody will discover exactly what happened to Piltdown. And the fact that we didn't figure it out is irrelevant. The fact that science, that the application of science resolve that issue that's the only thing that's important i agree Mm -hmm. yep and being myself an immortal 
I'll be around to, to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, just one more little thing on, on, oh, the, yeah. on the, the, the science reporting. So we've talked a little bit about that on the show over the course of many stories. Uh, right. Uh, and it comes up in cryptozoology a lot. There's like the Montauk monster. Well, you know, right. it, it takes somebody with some biological expertise, you know, 10 minutes to look at that and say, right, okay, sure. it's a raccoon. Or you know, or whatever the animals might be. A, a, mm-hmm. We've seen sloths that were soaked in water. And there's you know, when the hair comes off, people don't know what things are. You know, right. but but, oh, yeah. but but properly trained people know, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make the news stories, right? Right, not, not yeah. interesting enough. Yeah. Well, that's that's true too. I mean, it's even worse, I think, when we're talking about just bones. Um, I think people somehow assume that anybody looking at a pile of bones could could tell what kind of animal it is. I mean, nothing is further from the truth. I mean, I was I was once brought. I was a woman called me up because she was finding uh, human burials in a, a a lot behind her house where they were beginning to develop uh, a, a develop it for for condos. And I I went to her house and I thought, well, if it's human burials, we've got to call the state police. We have to call the state archaeologist. <clears throat> and if I talked to the state archaeologist. Said, Ken, since you live in the area, why don't you go look at it? And if it's what she says it is. You know, let me know immediately, and we'll have to bring the police in. And I went there, and this woman was as sincere as can be. She was an intelligent woman. She had all of her faculties and all of her senses. And what she had were, bo- and she had collected the bones, and they were boxes of pig bones. Wow! And she was convinced they were human. And it was at, at, it was embarrassing. And it turned out that the area that was being developed had been a pig farm like fifty years ago. And so, yeah, there were a lot of dead pigs there, and there were the bones of dead pigs. Um, this is really true. This happens all the time with the um, claims of, of, of giants on the earth and the earth that these that, that archaeologists are trying to hide the um, the evidence that the Smithsonian has been for years confiscating the bones of giant human beings, the Nephilim from the Bible. And when um, Adrian Mayer has written this wonderful book on on how in ancient Greece, the, the stories of the Titans and of the, the demigods that many of those are based on Greeks finding the bones of, of extinct animals like ground sloths and woolly and mastodons, you know, prehistoric elephants. And when the bones are sitting there, you can convince yourself, well, that's like a human femur. Only it's a hundred times larger than a human femur. That must be part of a giant. And that happens. That I think that is a major explanation when people say, no, there, there, there's evidence of giants. Look, we have this, this newspaper report. That, that's the other thing, too, is that there's this this argument of equivalency that somebody writing a newspaper article in 1810 talking about it's describing giant bones that that's the same as having an osteologist today look at bones <laughs> right and it's just you know, no actually that's not the same thing and and I, I think well even if you go back to the the way newspaper articles worked back in the 1880s and 1890s we, the um the great airship hoax well oh should, yeah, yeah yeah i mean i i believe it's just entertaining newspaper stories but people yeah. i think I expected back then that someone could read the newspaper and tell when you someone was being serious in an article and when someone was joshing right and yeah. and, and that does not seem to be a skill set that's prevalent today so i'm not sure <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, apparently there's there's a wonderful one of a an ancient underground city. I think it's supposed to be under St. Louis that was published in a local newspaper. Um, people went nuts looking for it. You will find people today as you know the ten great archaeological mysteries of the United States, and that's listed. If you go back to like 
the issue of the mag of the, the newspaper, like the next week, the editor of the newspaper says, Oh my god, people, calm down. We made that up. That was there's no such thing. It was purely <laughs> for entertainment. Um, yeah, yeah. do you guys know about the, the um the ancient city in the Grand Canyon? I do because I listen to Archaeological Fantasies podcast. There you go. <laughs> but but that's another one where it's abundantly clear that this was a you know it's the cute kind of human interest make it up entertaining story which was very common in those newspapers at mm-hmm. the turn of the twentieth century and now people read it and take it literally like oh my god there's there's a cave there and there are ancient bodies and there are Egyptians and it's Buddhists and there's all <laughs> kinds of cool stuff. When people approach me with that story, I say, I think it's bullshit, but here's the deal. You can shut me up just like that. Take me to the cave. Show me the cave. How hard could that be? If you say there's a cave in the goddamn Grand Canyon and it's got all this cool stuff in it, that should be pretty damned easy to figure out. People float down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. Let's get in the boat. Point the cave to me. We'll get some good spelunking equipment, some climbing gear. Let's go inside. Show me the cave. Well, they're never going to show you the cave because it doesn't exist. Or it's the government, you know, blew up the entrance to hide it because, yeah. you know, we can't hit. That's, I love that, that argument somehow that, that there's this conspiracy led by the government. Sometimes it's the Smithsonian because we're trying to keep this stuff secret from the American public. Because, but there's never a, okay, why? What's, why, what would be the motive of the U.S. government hiding the fact that there's a really cool archaeological site in Arizona? Shit, man, there are national monuments in Arizona <laughs> run yeah. by the government that are really cool archaeological you, you, you sites. You can't and handle you know the why. truth. You can't. Yeah, they're doing experiments there. <laughs> uh, listen, guys, you just, you, you, you stepped on my ad for my 50 Sites book. Oh, sorry, sorry. Back. Yeah, come on, man. So, there <laughs> There are archaeological, their federal government runs, controls, protects archaeological sites in Arizona, several of which you can read about in Ancient America, <laughs> 50 sites you can see for yourself. There you go. Nice. Nicely nice. tied up. Hey, did oh, that you... That was pretty cool, huh? That was not set up. Just... <laughs> when, Absolutely. Did, did, my, did my site make the final cut? Did you get the Etowah Indian Mounds or the Native American Mounds? They, they always... Etowah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's okay. in the top 50. That Absolutely. Just, as, as I have personal anecdotal experience because I grew up right near there. Uh, my... It's an inc- incredibly cool place. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, regardless of whether or not you're right, you, you buy my book... Uh, if you're if you're ever anywhere near there in Georgia, go to Etowah. They have a wonderful museum, and they have these gorgeous they're they're marble sculptures. Oh, they are awesome! They are, and awesome. they're painted. One's a man, one's a woman. They're both kind of kneeling. And the, the thing is, those those sculptures allow us to to at least reconstruct some of what these folks looked like in terms of either it's either tattoos or it's paint. Um, their headdresses, their loincloths, incredibly cool. But I think the coolest artifacts at Etowah are these these things called gorgets. And they're just a few inches apart. They're pieces of shell, and um, they're flat pieces of shell. And they have been etched out. So pe- parts of it have been cut out, and then they've been incised in the remaining part, and then like black pigment rubbed into the shell and then rubbed off so the black pigment only in here's in the incisions and the two gorgets that they have there on display are they they are they're people but they these people are dressed in what appear to be eagle cloaks so they're wearing masks that have eagle beaks 
They have talons on their feet, and they have they have what appear to be capes that also kind of mimic the wings of the bird, and they're holding these really kick-ass weapons that look like they're they look like they're stone, um, and they look absolutely deadly, like you'd see them in a in a you know a, a karate flick or something. Really, extra- and they're beautifully made, and you're looking at a site that's uh, what. A thousand to eight hundred years old, and it's a. Although it may have been abandoned by the time DeSoto and his dudes were floating around in the southeast in the 1530s, there were there are sites nearby that DeSoto actually described and said, "Yeah, these that you know we do a whole show about the mound builders and how Europeans denied the possibility that American Indians could be building the mounds, and yet here you got DeSoto and his chronicler." saying, oh yeah, well the Indians build these huge pyramids of earth and the chief's house is up on top of them and they're surrounded by miles of cornfields and there are thousands of people living here. So there, here you got the Spanish guys are saying this is exactly what we're, we're encountering here and then you've got the, 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 um, the Anglos up in the northeast saying, well Indians have never been known to build great mounds. So right. <laughs> learn to read Spanish guys and you would see that that's exactly what the Spanish chroniclers, the Spanish conquistadors were talking about. So yeah, go to Edo. It's a great place. If you, it's growing up here in the South. My dad's a carpenter, and uh, I've done a lot of uh, physical labor in my life. And uh-huh. digging in the ground with a shovel, the Georgia clay, uh, it's it's a hard work in the summer's day, right? Oh my god! And then yeah. you go see these mounds, and you got to imagine. Uh, as far as I know, they didn't have much by way of metal tools. Nope, uh, nope. Uh-uh. And that you can see the the dig pits where they've dug out the earth that they used to build the mounds. Right, the borrow pits. And it is uh, it's just an astonishing. Like you go, you have to hike up the stairs to get to the top of the big mounds, and it's like, oh crap, that's a <laughs> lot of dirt to be moving to make these pyramids. It's it's one one basket load at a time. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the 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 largest of these mounds. A site, Cahokia, which also happens to be in my book. It's in um, Collinsville, Illinois. It is it is like the the New York City of all of the mound builder sites. It, this, we're looking at a site that had probably a minimum of ten thousand people living in its immediate environs, maybe twenty thousand. One hundred and twenty mounds. Monks Mound called that after Trappist monks who built their their little monastery up on top of it. Monks Mound. Uh, which dominates the site, is over 100 feet high. It covers like 14 acres. And if you do the math, by volume, it is the fifth largest pyramid in the world. And that includes all the Egyptian pyramids and the Mesoamerican pyramids, uh, pyramids everywhere. Monk's Mound is enormous. And that, again, that's a bunch of people working with um, shovels that are made out of wood, sometimes with with shell added on to the bottom, no metal. (laughs) Maybe some copper, but copper's not going to be really strong enough to sustain all that digging in heavy clay. And it's one basket load at a time. Um, wow. It's it's kind of the essence of what constitutes a civilization, where you're able to conscript large a large labor force, and that those people are willing and able to do that work for a greater good. And in this case, the greater good is a place for the great chief who's got connections to the gods, a place for him to live. This whole business of you know we, we live in a we live in a time when there's the one percenters and the ninety nine percenters. Man, in terms of civilization, that characterizes every every civilization that ever existed. We got the one percenters <laughs> living on top of the mounds. 
and then everybody else at the bottom who are farming and giving their sons to be, to, to war to the military and and giving all their surplus food so that those rulers and leaders and those religious rulers they can live fat and happy because they're our our entry into the afterlife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly, it's like it's you, you just nailed something that I think is a huge concept that gets lost. People look at the these you know remnants of these ancient civilizations and how could they make this thing you know how could they build this it's too amazing it's too big it's too much it had to have help from aliens but what these things really tell us is a story about the technologies that had to be in place right these these these, all these prerequisites that you have to have in order to get that you can't get two guys in the woods and build a pyramid you've you've got to have a civilization you've got to have agriculture you have to have a language you may not have a written language but you have to be able to communicate to your workers you have to have belief systems yeah mm-hmm. so. and you got you what you got to have you also have to have kind of what the the social infrastructure in place and it, some of my colleagues talk about this a lot about you know why how come people who are more or less living an egalitarian way of life you're in control of your own your own your own fate um, you get to keep everything that you produce why would people willingly give that up and suddenly say, no, that guy's bigger and more important than me, and my social system reinforces that. We that 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 the rule is there really are people who are above me, and not only and I owe them this labor, I owe them this surplus, and and I actually benefit from that. It's that you know if people if people don't believe that social structure is hierarchical and there are people who's who can tell me what to do and I better well do it the whole system falls apart it doesn't work that's one of the reasons why when you look at the Olmec for example and you'll hear people say oh I'm Afrocentrist will say well, the Olmec and maybe even the Maya um, there were just a simple farming people until these West Africans came here and organized them to do this I said my god if 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 that had happened if a society with with, with uh, social stratification arrived in Mesoamerica and said, okay, everybody, what we want you to do now is we've we got a new system in place. You're going to give us all of your surplus and you're going to work for us. These people would just say, piss off, buddy, and walk away unless they had the military capability of enslaving them. Mm-hmm. And without that, you, you have to have – people have to believe that, that social strata is right and righteous and just and it's the way things should be and the 99 percent of people have to go along with that or the system falls apart you can't build pyramids unless you got people saying yeah i i should be doing this this actually benefits me in the long run Mm -hmm. i guess in that sense people it's it's as it's as likely that you're enslaved by social narrative or your personal narrative than than necessarily by force that these these stories that are part of your culture can drive you to do things that wouldn't make any sense to an outsider and, oh yeah yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and those stories are unfortunately if there's no writing you know we can only speculate you know there, there's it's not always clear what sure what the stories were but wouldn't it be great right. to know it's like <laughs> yeah. well it's, it's what we need is we need that wayback machine that you know mr peabody invented all these years ago so just you know Dial dial it to or, or Stewie from Family Guy, right? Um, you know, st- turn turn the dial, go back in time, and actually watch people doing stuff. Yeah, it would but be, we can't do be that. great. But but each of these places, I'm sure, 
will give you at least an inspirational look at what is possible when people work together. So you, you, absolutely, absolutely, and that's. I mean, I, I I don't want to keep going back to my book, but I will. And it's the bottom line here is <laughs> so the bottom line here is that so many people have so many stereotypes about Native Americans, and when you part of the, my reason for writing the book was that I want when you are confronted personally by these amazing achievements. You cannot help but ha- but reassess those stereotypes. You know, this was a that these folks had numerous sophisticated, creative cultures that were able to produce amazing stuff. And and no, it didn't. It wasn't Atlanteans. It wasn't Phoenicians. It wasn't ancient aliens. It was the folks. It was these people. And to appreciate that. To appreciate that element of these sites. So that's that's yeah. that was part certainly a major part of my goal in the book. Neat. Yeah. Should be very that's, proud of way, it. The book, the book, by the way, is it's. Did we, have we mentioned the title? No, no. What's it no, called? No, Ancient America. It's, uh, it's Roman and Littlefield. <laughs> and it's Go on. 40, 49 sites. Yeah, fifty-one. Uh, no, it's actually it's fifty. You know, 50, funny, 50 yeah, okay. I, I was working. On, I, had to, I had to recount them now as you were asking. It's 50, <laughs> sites, it's fifty sites that you can see for yourself, and that I really want you to go and see. That's awesome. I, you I know, I, I, I'm just disappointed you didn't call it fifty sites of graves, but that's just me. <laughs> you've been, waiting you know, you've the whole been, episode to say that. You've been pushing that. I know. You know it's a oh, great title. You I have I, to write I, your own. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> last question. Yeah, uh, and I, we didn't prep you for this. We used to always ask people, you know, what's your favorite monster? But we've had you on several times. So yeah. a different question for our repeat guests. Do you yeah. have a favorite monster movie? Um, you know, let me think about it. All right. The, here, you ready for this? The monster movie that scares the crap out of me. That's what we want. At, yep. <laughs> anytime I watch it is the original Mummy with Boris Karloff. Wow. That is so freaking creepy and you know why it's really quiet it is <laughs> not a lot of noise i mean these are you watch you watch one of these kind of scary horror movies and it's like it's so freaking loud and and the cuts are so quick this the, the mummy because maybe it's partially because they didn't have the technology or maybe that's a lot of it but man when when he starts walking and there's just this silence and it's slow and the camera can just kind of focuses on this great makeup job, oh my god, I pee myself. <laughs> I mean, and that is the fact that I'm, you know, I'm an archaeologist. I really like Egypt and stuff like that. I love that's. I think that's my favorite monster movie of all time. If wow. you can, nice. if we can cl- include, you know, the mummy as a monster. Sure, of course we can. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, I, I, we've had on the Egyptologist before to talk about that too. Oh, uh, and then uh, we had on. Um, Richard Sugg, who had talked a lot about using Egypt, uh, Egyptian mummies as medicine. Okay, yeah. And uh, it, I guess that was a big popular thing uh, in, I guess, the 1800s. And, right. And yeah. earlier, really. But I, I thought it was so funny because I thought a great title for that would be The Cures of the Mummy's Tomb instead of The Curse. Ah. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> yes. Another book Peter right. Yeah. You and about four other people would get that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it sucks when you got, you come up with something really brilliant and you realize there's only about four people that this would really. Well, it's they're all listening to this show. Exactly. Yes. This is a self-selecting audience. So. <laughs> Whatever. That's awesome, though. What's your, what, what's your favorite? Oh, well, I, 
I have this uh, habitual uh, thing where I keep going back and watching John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and uh, and I do like the original, which is uh, The Thing from Another World. Uh, but I, I just love the the Carpenter version of The Thing. Uh, it, the special effects hold up so well. I'm, I'm sure my audience is sick of hearing me talk about it, but I, I'll tell you, and maybe I'll just cut this part out. But it's set in Antarctica, right? And, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so every winter, I I have this party where I I serve up chili, and then we open all the windows and make it as cold as we can, and we watch the movie <laughs> in the cold, and I call yeah. it the annual the thing thing, and that's like. <laughs> but now, all right. Trivia question. In the original movie, who played the thing? James Arness. Isn't that cool? It is. It is. That really is cool. I that we must were... have been early on in his career, right? It was very early. I think it might have been his first film. He's a big right. guy. I think he's like 6'8". And his brother, yeah, yeah, yeah. His brother is uh, Peter Graves, and he's also like 6'7 yes. or 6'8". I didn't realize right. how tall he was. Um, but we talked about that in the, a, a very recent episode where uh, I get, Peter Graves was in... Um, it's like the... It, it's a giant grasshopper movie. I can, I was oh, I mean, yeah... Yeah. I don't remember the name of it. I don't know. What and you're so, and about. then yeah. so Arnett's is in uh, them uh, versus giant ants, and his brother is in uh, this other movie uh, versus giant grasshoppers. And uh, history has not been kind to the giant grasshopper film. It's the no, uh, huh? the FX are not really good. So, <laughs> but now, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, if we if we extend that into just not just monster movies but horror movies, and I'm I'm going to screw up the title. Um, the Car- is it Carnival of Souls? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you would that, know. <laughs> that movie freaked the s*** out of me when I was a kid. I, I watched it and, recently, and, oh, okay, it's not quite as scary. No, it's pretty but scary. But it's a pretty <laughs> scary movie. And <laughs> my understanding is that what, they just, they literally kind of broke into an abandoned carnival for that final scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly creepy. I'm, that's one now of my I want to watch it. If you're a fan of riff tracks, they're actually doing a. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's what that's going to be the Halloween movie is Carnival of Souls. Now, okay. my my son, oh, that's that's like the modern. After Mystery Science Theater went off the air, they kind of split out, and one group does Cinematic Titanic, and the other group okay. does uh, riff tracks. But it's the same concept idea. Do you know who Zachary is? I sure do. It's last time I checked, he's still alive. He's still alive. He's like in his 90s. Yeah, But when yeah. I was a kid growing up in New York, and I can't remember which, was it Thriller or Chill? But there was, he did the thing where he would have these, odd, like Plan 9 from Outer Space, but he would interject in the middle of the movie, sometimes audio, but also visually. So that, I remember in one case, it, I think, I don't know if it was that movie, where in the movie, they're looking through a microscope, and then... What you're see instead of seeing what the movie presents, <laughs> Zachary has this like this bizarre thing in the microscope. It was it was hilarious. Um, in Plan Nine from Outer Space, every once in a while, it, it it looked like it was still the movie, but it was Zachary like in a coffin getting up and saying, "This movie sucks. I can't believe how terrible it is," and then going back in the coffin. Yeah, so there's kind of like that. There, yeah, the, the, that whole we did an episode on Vampira, but there, there, that whole oh yeah, 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 yeah. horror movie hostess uh, type uh, thing, it it's kind of died out in a sense. But it seems like online, uh, there's some people doing it on YouTube now, sort of carrying forward the tradition. That's very cool. Peer reviewed, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Peer reviewed. Nice. Good callback. <laughs> this has this has nothing to do with anything. But you, do you know the movie What's Up, Tiger Lily? I sure do. <laughs> I, that's how great is that? It's really good. It's really I, really good. I, I really, I mean, I, I when I saw it fairly recently, I said, all right, it's kind of slow in places, but I, what a great idea! You know? 
So yeah, they that whole uh, they you know they did a thing. They, um, it was um, what did they have? I can't remember what they used to call it, but they would like lip sync movies, uh, and um, you would get like people would do it live. And uh, I, I found that a, it's a lot harder to try to make a movie make sense. You know, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, with, yeah. When you replace yeah. the dialogue. It's, it's tricky as hell. But there, hmm. was, there was kind of an internal insane consistency to, the, uh, <laughs> to, to What's Up, Tiger Lily, and the, the perfect egg salad recipe. Or yeah, it really seemed that. to work pretty well. So, <laughs> And I guess, I guess in that sense, um, uh, that was Woody Allen. And he, yes. he did... Um, a sort of a, an interesting. I, I haven't actually watched it, but he did the uh, the movie where he Zillig he asserts himself yes. into historical yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of before Forrest Gump uh, sort of pulled that trick off, yeah, he was sort uh-huh. of putting himself mm-hmm. into these historical scenes. So uh, he's he's kind of toyed with that medium quite a bit. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> but it would be it would be really it would be great to take like the the original in search of ancient astronauts that was narrated by Rod Serling completely yeah. wipe wipe the audio. And have you know Rod saying, "I can't believe you assholes believe this shit." Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's that's so funny you bring that up. I I was just looking at my DVDs today and, and saw that one. Uh, so I've got the original and I've got all of the right. uh, in search of. And so uh-huh. the in search of series ended up with Leonard Nimoy. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But only because Serling died. I mean, that as far mm-hmm. as I know, he he was going to be the guy. Or, yeah. I mean, I I pretty much think that the, the ancient astronauts one was kind of the the long form pilot. For what was going to be the series with him as the narrator? I think so. That's that's my understanding. I, if I remember, it might be Alan Landsberg. I think it was the producer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I, I but, tried to get him as a guest, but uh, unfortunately, he passed before he yeah. ever answered any of my yeah, emails. So. <laughs> but I guess Sterling was a true believer in ancient aliens. So uh, well, you know, now I'm willing to forgive him that because oh, that's fine. By the, I mean, I at, loved the, at the time, time, I mean, I don't know how much you know. Von Daniken's book had only been out a little while. And right. I, I don't know how much he had looked into it, right? So, uh, and and let's be honest. I mean, Serling is known for his fantasy and science fiction. He's not really known for his uh, scientific, uh, you know, credentials. You keep keep on rationalizing. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> fine. Oh. Yeah. Hey, listen, I love Twilight Zone is spectacular. We could probably do another hour. What's your favorite Twilight Zone episode? And go down all those. But we don't. I don't have time to do that now. But. But that would be another episode. Yeah, I've got a list. Let me tell you. Yeah, my my son's just been introduced to those. He is loving it. And then, of course, yeah, they're really smart. They are. They are. And and my God, they look so good on our TV. We got, yeah. I, I got a pretty good TV, and it it, it looks um, way better than it did on my little black and white growing up. I mean, sure. Yeah, oh yeah, so, of course. So, yeah. uh, it, it holds up. Well. I'm gonna have to get. Uh, Get going and yeah, make uh, the baby some dinner. All right, let's stop. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Almost eight o'clock here, but a special um, extended edition. All right, and <laughs> nearly forty minutes of it is usable. All right, <laughs> <laughs> whatever you got. And again, I want that parental advisory sticker. Come you on. got it. I promise. <laughs> All right. Well, this listen. This is great. I really enjoyed doing these. And, oh, um, thank you for coming on again. Oh yeah, of course. Hey, Our listeners love you, and, and we, they do. And we're excited about That's our cool. crossover episode. We're going to do so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We gotta When's that, that going to be? Fantasy oh, we haven't stuff. scheduled it, but we've got the topic. It's going to be fairies and archaeology, and I'm super stoked. Cool. That, so. Yeah, yeah. I know next to nothing, but Jeb will talk your ears off and 
and he does know a lot about. Oh that, yeah, so. I, it's terrible. I have a total bromance for him because I mean we have got so much in common. So yeah, uh, cool. <laughs> Listen, you want, you just want the two of you like alone? No, no, yeah, we, yeah. We, we, you wouldn't arrange that. The email exchanges we've had on HP Lovecraft alone are just ridiculous. So, all right, <laughs> that will be fun. all good. All right, you guys have a good night. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Karen Stolzno. And I'm Blake Smith. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you want to know views on you can. Or you could subscribe to their magazine at skeptic.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Thanks again to everyone who's joined Patreon or donated to us in the past. We really appreciate your support. We're still trying to figure out the reward system, and it may be December before we get all that figured out. But the Amazon books are also great, and I want to say thanks to Gwen and David and James and anyone else I've missed who sent in a book. We really appreciate those a lot and love the used ones. Thank you. Here's a quick reminder about a huge skeptics conference coming up in October. The Committee for Skeptical Inquiry is hosting SciCon 2016 in Las Vegas. Go to csiconference.org for more details. But the guest list is amazing. you got James Randi, Massimo Polidoro, Elizabeth Loftus, Ray Hyman, Joe Nickel, Eugenie Scott, Lawrence Krauss. Look, the list is just full of awesome people. Go check it out. That's csiconference.org in Las Vegas, October 27th through the 30th, 2016. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Well, this is probably a good segue to talk about uh, archaeological frauds. We wanted to talk about the new Piltman 
Uh, the Piltdown Man <laughs> news. Yeah. Pilt man. <laughs> Pilt man. Yeah. Besides, like, he's a new superhero? Yeah. Or it's a, a video game. Of, I guess you're level three on Pilt Man. But... <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that out. 